Hi folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Joined today by an amazing lady, Monica Guzman. She is digital and storytelling director for a group called Braver Angels, but her conversation today is about a book that she's written, published two months ago. I never thought of it that way, how to have fiercely curious conversations in dangerously divided times. And it's all about this way of starting to explore divided political um, society that we live in at the moment and starts with her story of her parents and how they voted Republican and she was a Democrat and how they started as Mexican immigrants to have that conversation in the US. And it goes on to an analysis of where we are now in society and very useful ways of framing the way we have these conversations. A fascinating conversation. Again, one of these ones that you could have talked for hours and hours on the, the subject and gone down different avenues. So love the fact that you're going to get the chance to hear about this today. You'll love the book if you get a chance to read it and uh, enjoy Monica. How are things? How are things going? What are you working on? Let's warm up on that. Mm -hmm. Things are going great. It's been two months since the book's launched, just about, and total whirlwind. COVID has been lightening up in some ways across the United States. And so Mm. a lot of bookstores are having some of their first in-person author events. And there I am, (laughs) (laughs) showing up in New York and D.C. and San Francisco and that's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot. Of fun. I could imagine. I mean, I've, I haven't done a, a book launch in a bookstore because my book launched in COVID, so I haven't done it. What's it like? What's the What's the reaction from the people? I love it because I've been really curious, not surprisingly, about people's reaction and what questions they bring to the whole thesis behind it. And so it's mm. at these events, you know, people raise their hand and say but what about this? Or here's my situation. And they'll workshop things with me. Nice. And that's great because I just want to keep learning. You know, this is not, the book is not an answer. It's just trying to get more questions. Yeah. I'm always fascinated that you've written a book on this and as a parent and you being a parent, I wonder whether there's, you know, the difficult conversations we have with our kids, there's something in there about polarization of you know dad you're stupid dad you're embarrassing dad you're you know (laughs) to that 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 conversation i'm always uh, there's there's a route that tends to go down these podcasts linking back to parenting yeah childhood and how you've reacted and then the world's problems and those are the three topics absolutely somebody told me that on some audiobook platform where they searched my book the other recommended titles were all parenting (laughs) 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 so something in the algorithm is connecting the dots yeah my daughter 18 just allowed to drink alcohol what conversations are we going to have? Yeah, it's fascinating. Ooh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. How much trust is there for that kind of <laughs> advice? Eesh. Well, you see, it's it's whether if you go back and I go, this is point I hide, and I go, well, you know, if you do what I did, then you just you let go. I was a third child, two sisters above me, so son was in those days just allowed, allowed to get out and get on with it. So yeah. So who am I to say no? Yeah. Whereas my yep. wife would say something completely different on that topic. <laughs> Good luck, daughter. <laughs> exactly. Choose between. Yeah, no doubt. Yes. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your background. Listeners, a bit of your background, where you've come from, and how you got to this this book. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been a journalist my whole career, and mm. it's always been really fascinating to me to learn about people and try to help people understand each other. 
it sounds basic. It's the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> it's extremely it complicated in part because people are the hardest thing in the world to understand. We're so complicated and we constantly try to give shortcuts and statistics and studies and surveys. And here's an expert on this and here's an expert on that and that group of people and that group of people, but that's all baloney. There's no yeah. such thing as an expert on humans. We're just endlessly fascinating. So I love journalism. I love storytelling, but I reached a point several years ago where it started to feel like, why am I still telling stories when the world is so fractured mm -hmm. that the stories that I intend to reach lots of people can't the platforms and the media, the way it's packaged, the way that trust has formed this sort of web of different silos and communities and everything's breaking apart. It felt like I had to pull away and solve that problem, work on that problem. If I really wanted to help people understand each other. So I did, yeah. uh, I took a break from journalism to write this book, the personal thread that, brought me to this book because I feel like with a topic like this, you, you better have a real strong impetus to tackle, to tackle this. Yes. There's definitely an arena you're going into with this topic. Uh -huh. Yeah. Real easy, right? Polarization. Yeah. Simple piece of cake. The, the personal reason is my relationship with my parents. So mm. I'm a Mexican immigrant. They are Mexican immigrants. I came to the United States when I was six and mm -hmm. we became citizens in the year 2000. Uh, that's when I learned for, for reals that my parents were Republicans while I was Democrat. And as a high schooler at the time, I just figured they were going to think the way I do. And no, they didn't. Why, why would they? And so thus ensued many years of very intense conversations, you know, restaurants where we're yelling at each other in Spanish and other people are turning to look and seeing what the heck is going on. And it's a lot about a lot about politics, you know, what Glenn Beck said the other day, you know, they follow him very closely and, and what my news sources said and just yelling and yelling. At the uh, 2015 presidential campaign with Donald Trump, the, the heat really turned up for us, as you could imagine. Mm, it did for yeah. families all across the country. And it was no less intense than you'd expect. It was a lot of heat. Mm. But as I think of it now, that heat cooked something instead of burning something. Interesting. And we managed to get to the point, and this is an ongoing thing, where they understood my reasons for voting for Clinton, mm. and I understood their reasons for voting for Trump. I didn't agree with them. I never will. Mm. But I understood yeah. them um, as a liberal, right? I'm liberal. They're very conservative. Mm. And then seeing the contrast between the conversations we were able to have mm. and how extraordinarily difficult, you know, those conversations really are in practice for so many. And then the brokenness that seems to be a result of n not just our inability to have such, such difficult conversations, which again, not surprising. There's a lot of good reasons mm. they're so hard, but also our disgust, our growing disgust with people across the divide mm. that is not founded on the actual disagreements. We're not as divided as we think. Mm but instead founded on fear, founded on, on emotion, on projection, on misperceptions that we've detected mm -hmm. and that we should be very worried about. Um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of folks are alarmed for the future of the country. And yeah. for me, it's, it's about that. It's about, we've got to be able to see each other. We have to be able to approach each other. Mm -hmm. And if we think it's enough to read a bunch of thought pieces on the internet and then decide that we know everything we need to know about 
people in our country and our neighbors who see things differently, we're going to spin right out of control. Yeah. And when you're in that work, because, I mean, the, the research you must have done for this is, is extensive uh, to, to get in there. Take us through some of the thinking that you've got, because in some ways to solve a problem, you've got to understand how it's got there and how it's it's worked there. So maybe take that and then stage us through this, because I'm fascinated with this, because we're having the same thing with Brexit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I almost I went and hold a good friend. And before we went, we said, look, we need to have dinner together and see whether we can stop arguing enough to have you know dinner mm-hmm. before we go on holiday. And we did. But when we're on holiday, <laughs> it still came after a couple of drinks, it came mm-hmm. into that conversation. So with Brexit and everything else, with Ukraine and Russia and everything now, it's spreading around the world. So I'd love to hear a bit of your insights about the research and, and how it gets there and how mm-hmm. we start to unravel it. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I sum up how we got here is the SOS, the call for help, Mm -hmm. Uh, sorting, othering and siloing. Mm -hmm. And sorting is natural human tendency to want to be around people who are like us. We all do it. It makes for comfortable, meaningful lives to find Mm -hmm. our crew. And in times of stress and anxiety, it's even more urgent for all of us that we know with whom we belong. Mm -hmm. And and it becomes very important to a sense of peace in chaos. Othering is the natural human tendency (laughs) traced across history to put distance between ourselves and those we deem to be different. And the difference doesn't have to be all that meaningful or deep uh, in order for us to do this. That's been demonstrated. So when it is meaningful, when we begin to think this other person doesn't want me to exist, This other person doesn't see me, doesn't accept me. Hmm. It's war, right? And that's where we're at. Hmm. Not not everybody, but but quite a few folks. And then siloing is the last one. And that is about the stories that we tell each other as a result of sorting and othering, but also how specifically we can select and curate the voices that we hear, the thoughts that we allow to enter our minds, especially when we pop onto our technologies and, you know, Mm. we're not allowed to pick our neighbors in the real world, but we are in the digital one. And so we often do. That doesn't mean that we're not exposed to different perspectives. Mm. What it means is that when we are exposed to different perspectives, it is usually through the filter of people who agree with us. So they commentate on those other perspectives and we all still sit in these in these silos that grow deeper and deeper with time. So those three dynamics add up to the SOS and basically to to my thesis that we're so divided, we're blinded. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing the world as it is because we are not informed about people and their perspectives. Mm-hmm. And and there's the degree in here. So I love what you're talking about, the sorting and the almost who's my tribe and how you've and the more I do work on equity and work in that space and see how privileged I am and how lucky I am to have the skin color I have and everything else that goes with that, you know, male. Um, so the sorting, I, I understand the, the other ring piece. Yeah. And I, I see it so much in my daughters in the schooling and how we other somebody. Yeah. For small differences right. in there. And, you know, in, in our day it was music. But, you know, it's now got more complex and it's got to the point of, of bullying. Now, 
the the bit for me about siloing and bullying, and I just want to, to to come to is is the misconception of our language and how we treat others when we have othered them and put them to the, the side. And I'm fascinated to understand, particularly then, when it comes to the social media. Is this more about social media, or is it more about just our society is social media driven? So even our day to day conversations off social media are different. Yeah, social media is an enormous influence. If you were to chart out all of the expression in the world that mm. is about tense subjects that we can all connect to, in other words, politics, yeah. <laughs> if you could chart out all the human expression on that, right, a hundred years ago compared to today, mm. obviously the share of that expression that now exists on platforms that severely constrain our toolkit of human communication, i.e., social media mm. is enormous, yeah. enormous. There's a lot of people where that's the only place they talk about politics for a bunch yeah. of interesting reasons. Mm. Then of course we just passed through a pandemic though. So it's not, it's not all social media. It was literally dangerous to be with another person yeah. and to, and to just get together. The only context where we have our full toolkit of, of human communication at the ready to help us transmit our meaning to someone else is when we are together in person. Mm -hmm. And for the last two years across most of the world, that became literally dangerous. So you yeah. couldn't have, you couldn't have thrown a worst bomb <laughs> into, you know, the crisis we already had of, of severe judgment paired with severe disengagement. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about. So, mm -hmm. you know, Social media is a, is a big thing to point the finger at, but but the truth is, it's just it's just a tool, right? It's yeah. it's about how we use it. We could choose to use social media as the most incredible way to unify mm. and to learn about people who we don't see eye to eye with, but that's not the way we tend yeah. to use it, and it's very difficult to because it does exploit, for the sake of getting our attention, a lot of our not great instincts. So therefore, we're coming back into the echo chamber concept, and we're we're listening to people who think like us and work like this, and and therefore we are coming to the polarization. I'm fascinated by the concept of polarization mainly because my political beliefs tend to lie in a mixture of a whole load of different things that come from different parties, and we come from a country where it's Labour conservatives, right or left, and the middle ground never really wins anything similar to the US. And I, I'm interested to understand now from the book how you're starting to get things that can help people to to start to explore. Because part of the pandemic for us actually brought a lot of us together because it was about the care for the human, the individual, the sick, the ill, the community. And actually, in some ways, the community has become stronger because of it. But as the, you know, I feel that receding as we, we open up. Yeah. Yeah, I do see that almost like a countercurrent. Mm. of understanding just how much we need each other, how important connection and belonging truly are, how tragic it is when those basic human needs seem to be steering us away from each other instead of towards each other. I mean, it's the ultimate paradox for me that we have never been so connected and yet we've never been so misinformed about other people with such confidence. Mm. And I never thought of it that way. In my book, I talk a lot about curiosity, the power of curiosity. Mm. The arch enemy of curiosity is certainty. Mm. And certainty is something that we reach for 
very quickly when we are stressed. Yep. We need we need an answer because the world's too scary right now. Mm. And it's difficult to continue to ask questions. Mm. So that stinks because times like this are full of complexity. Mm. And um, complexity becomes confusion and confusion is scary and terrible and doesn't feel good. And so we don't we don't want to dwell in uncertainty. And so a lot of us just go and, and figure out who's got a theory for me that I can that I can glom onto mm. and and find my find my tribe and go from there. So that that does get pretty pretty tough. But but to your point, I do think that the last couple of years have been really eye opening mm. to just how much humans need each other. We have evolved as social creatures for a reason. Yeah. It, it has its dark side and it has its bright side too. And the biggest tragedy to me is the enormous human capital, human capacity, intelligence, competence, talent that is out there. But then you put it through the systems that purport to help us thrive, right? And they are so polarized and divided and, and there's so much toxicity in there that the output of all that capacity is a fraction of what it ought to be. Yeah, That's the real tragedy that everyone across any politics of any opinion will agree with. Yeah. And it was fascinating to me also is that there's a polarization and then there's a bringing together. But, but for me, any system needs a healthy tension. You know, take leadership, take anything in here. We need a healthy tension. And, and therefore, a lot of the society has succeeded on the basis you get different minds and different in a room and come with a better solution or get a bit of friction. Positive conflict, as my friend Leanne Davy writes in her book, The Good Fight, which is how do you get positive conflict? So we need f- some form of conflict is my hypothesis in there but it's about how you have the debate around that so where are you landing on that in the book where are you you getting to on that oh yeah i think of it as friction that's the the word that i love there's a french philosopher michelle de montagne you know long mm. dead <laughs> and I, I don't quote a lot of you know <laughs> long, I'm loving long it. Ago quotes, <laughs> but i do like this particular quote um and he he talks about how uh, our brains need to rub and polish against each other. Yeah. That that the the friction that comes when perspectives meet and explore each other and the sparks that fly mm. are part of what keeps us sharp. Mm. It's what keeps us sharp. It's what keeps us smart and wise. You know, we mm. talk a lot about education and intelligence and information. We don't talk a lot about wisdom. No. And and to me, wisdom is something that comes from the acceptance of the validity of all human experience, mm. that even if someone isn't an expert in some subject, they're, an, they're as much of an expert in life as you are, and they come at it from a completely different different place because they've lived a different life. You've got to be open to learning how things look to other people. So that to me is extremely important. So conflict is about making sure that we don't get dull and that we don't get dumb. Mm. Uh, you know, there's that, that that quote, great minds think alike. Great minds who think alike also share all their blind spots. Yes. <laughs> you know? And so, hello, don't, yep. don't do that. Mm. Truly great minds will not allow themselves to be surrounded by those who think alike. Yeah. That's just key, you know? Otherwise, they're just going to petrify into something. And, and, yeah, and glom onto too much certainty. And you talked about fear before, because the thing with conflict is everybody fears conflict. So, you know, if I start on a political rant in the house, you know, uh, there's a comment that normally comes up where dad's getting angry. You know, 
do you want something to calm you down? So that there's a piece about that's, that we're always nipping in the bud where we start to get conflict. And, and part of it is fear because people don't like difficult conversations and, and work in there. The French have, for me, I've got it correct. I love France, I lived in France. And, you know, that when you look at their education system, yeah, the education system was fine, but the left bank, the right bank, in terms of the Seine and how they came together, debated, they have a whole country that's based on strikes plus thinking plus. So they are bashing it together every day um, in terms of their thinking. But I think there's a lot of it in terms of the emotional intelligence, but also the the willingness to go and spend that emotional energy on a conflict or a challenge, which is, is in there. What's your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. Well, you're right. We do tend to look at emotional outbursts as a sign of system failure on a mm. conversation. Abort, abort. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. didn't work. Now all we have to do, we have to calm everyone down, like you said. Yep. And it's true that you want to, if things are getting out of control, turning down the temperature is a good idea. But again, heat is okay as long as you're cooking something and not burning something. So what, one thing I think about is, is anger, for example. If, if you hear someone get really angry about something, the reaction that they will not expect that might be really great instead of echoing that anger back to them or trying to calm them down and abort, abort, you could also say, I didn't realize how much this matters to you. Yeah. That is an observation of curiosity. Mm. You switch from engagement that is personal mm-hmm. to stepping back and really noticing and observing that other person and what they are showing by their passion. Yeah. So anger, joy, I mean, these things are all just passion and we can, we can interpret it that way. So I didn't know this mattered t- so much to you, dad. Well, and, you know, and then you can follow with a question. What is it that most bothers you about this? Is it, is it this thing or something else? Yeah. You know, and then instead of that person, we, we are, we're all trying to move on. We're actually trying to listen more. Hmm. We're trying to listen to that anger. It's giving us data and we're trying to, we're trying to listen more. So we're going to hmm. cook up some understanding that way. Yeah. I, l- I love that because it's, it is that bit that if we fall out of our own thinking, and a lot of the times as we grow older, great friend, Jamie Smarter wrote a book called Clarity. And he talks about that we freeze up our minds over time. So we freeze up with an experience, with a reaction, with a thought that comes immediately, instinctively to our minds. And therefore, as a child, we had a self-correcting system. So we could argue with our best friend one moment and then be smiling and laughing the next moment. And, and therefore, the power of the mind is, is, is very important. So there is this bit that when, when you're cooking something, it is about making sure that that what you're cooking is based on understanding. Um, and I remember having the, the Brexit conversation with uh, this good friend and we went away and, you know, the rest, it was that classic moment where the re- we realized the restaurant had cleared, everybody was wanting to go home, i.e. the staff, and we were still talking. But we distilled it down to, we're a really good place, whereas we distilled it down to the thing we could agree on was, in this case, single currency. His view was single currency, let's, Let's get out of it now in case it ever happens. Mine was, well, we could always get out if it, if it did happen at a later stage. But it was interesting because it was plain to your point, which was, I didn't know you cared so much about that. Tell me exactly what you understand, you, understand, you feel about this. Um, and we get to the point. And therefore, it's, it's, but it's difficult for people to set, sit in a room long enough. And particularly in more complex subjects, 
Yeah. To work on. So what was it, the complexity piece I'm interested in because I'm fascinated how you have your conversations with your parents as well about how you get past that complexity into uh, agreeing on bite-sized chunks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just talked recently with someone uh, here in the U.S. who has a group. Uh, she calls it her cousin group. Mm. And so there's a vast network of cousins and they all disagree politically and they decided to get together on a regular basis and actually talk about some of the hardest issues uh, in the country. And she was telling me that the tip that they have, you know, really arrived at organically that works so well for them is to always be asking, uh, what can we say yes to? What can you say yes to wherever there's a disagreement? Yeah. But what can you say yes to? Mm -hmm. So you found that with your friend on the single currency. And that's awesome because it gives you like a base camp, Mm -hmm. You know, when you're climbing a mountain, a really, really tall one, the idea is you can't just go up all at once. You have to stop and rest and acclimate Mm -hmm. and and connect a little bit with the environment that you're in. And so that's one of the things that allows you to go longer is if you can find something you say yes to, it's it's like building a base camp up a mountain. You you find a resting place. Mm -hmm. And so now you can reach higher next time. So, you know, you're asking about longevity and endurance in a conversation, and I could write a whole other book just about that. But, Uh, but another thing that I think of is we don't often think about the different modes we're in when we are in the realm of reason versus reason and the realm of debate. mm -hmm. And when we are in the realm of story. So naturally in a conversation, we switch between those modes all the time. You know, we're sharing information we are sharing opinions and reasons. We are telling stories to illustrate something or to pass on information. So if you if you imagine, you know, the last time you were in a conversation and somebody just started telling you a story for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, last night at the bar, you know, God, I tell you this thing that happened, you know, and then you hear that person tell you the story. And there's a what happens is that your brain switches from concepts to images and you you actually picture what that person is telling you. So when you are having difficult conversations across perspectives, if you can get some stories in there, you know, and there's many ways to do this, which we'll review, but, but if you can illustrate your perspective with a story, you know, this thing happened to me, let me tell you about it because it helps explain how I feel or tell me about a time when this really irritated you or, you know, sometimes people will drop hints that they have a story to tell. Oh yeah, I know all about that. What do you mean? (laughs) <laughs> what yep. do you mean? and so but 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 that's what happens we, we can all notice it like i notice my shoulders kind of relax when i'm listening to a story my brain begins to imagine it's a, a little movie plays in my head of this person's life it's a wonderful mm-hmm. way to inject empathy into a conversation to turn down the temperature and to remember that our perspectives are not just logic and reason they never have been and the more that we pretend that the, the more in a jam we're going to get, we need to loosen that traffic jam of reason with story. You know, I love uh, stories analogies for me. Is, I was chatting to a colleague and he does some work in getting people to understand as a leader, how they can gather people together. And he uses beautiful analogies and he uses the work of the Masemara um, and Mongolian uh, migrants families in terms of how they, they operate and work. But he talks, you know, what what am I hunting? What am I protecting? And what am I growing? And he talks about this analogy about inviting people around the campfire. So I'm inviting you around the campfire to talk. 
But if you clear on the map in terms of here's our mountains, as he describes, here's our swamps, and here's our rivers that we need to get over. And what I love about that is you could almost see people getting together with that analogy and starting to work out the swamps are where we're going to have some disagreement, but we've got lots of other things that we could, you know, we could agree our minds on. So. Exactly. And I think that's, that's it. And in fact, um, Amanda Ripley is another great author. She wrote a book called high conflict, highly recommended. Mm. So she, she passes on some incredible research uh, about the endurance of conversation. And it's not the topics that you tackle. It's, whether you can have conversations that mix positive and negative moments, stressful moments and moments of levity, you know, the, the things that come from story and the things that come from really thinking hard uh, into a disagreement, you, you mix it up. It's diversity like everything else, right? Diversity is good. Mm-hmm. You got to have a diverse, diverse set of elements in your conversation and, and you, it can actually take on a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, what you're hinting at there, and also sometimes is the in the most difficult times, difficult conversations, sometimes humor, um, not at the expense of people, but humor is the the greatest way of breaking some of the ice in what you've got. I, I want to come back into uh, the book itself because polarization and ideally what we're trying to go to, as you said, is wisdom. But then we come back to our education system, which is knowledge is what you learn. Wisdom, forget that. We'll learn that through life. So so what's your view on dealing with the younger um, people, sort of school age and other things to get us to, to, to break this? Because there's all this data that says, you know, the, the younger people wouldn't have voted for Brexit. The younger people wouldn't have voted for the likes of Trump or whoever it is. But take the data out of it. There's something about that group that almost I feel we need to be tapping into. What's your views? Yeah, I see, I mean, everyone says this, right? But I I do, I see a lot of hope and optimism in in really young people today. Mm. There's an organization in the United States called Bridge USA. Oh my goodness, it's fantastic. I was Mm. at their uh, annual summit a couple weeks ago in DC and it just blew my mind. These are 50 campuses across the country and it's an organization that brings, you know, conservative and liberal viewpoints and students together, and they host debates on campuses. They talk about the right methods to be able to disagree constructively. And, oh my gosh, being in the room with the, the chapter leaders of that organization and hearing them bring mm. up any old issue you can imagine, and everyone can actually, like, respectfully engage, share their actual concerns, you know, all kinds of ideas that if you throw it on Twitter, who knows what'll happen, right? But if but if you put it into this room, we can engage. Mm-hmm. Oh man, was that cool. That gave me a ton of hope. And also when I when I think about, man, some of these young people, you know, they spent, you know, four years under Trump and then Obama in, in the United States, but then also the world, like everything going on in the world right now. And they, they saw Brexit, they're seeing Ukraine. Man, like the stuff they're going through. So, but it's a fresh perspective. They're growing up into this world and they are more optimistic and less jaded about a lot of things than older folks would be. And I think that that's, that's really the hope is, is every generation is a renewal of human, human energy, but raised in the particular challenges of the moment. So yes, you know, these are folks raised in the particular challenges of the moment and coming up with a lot of energy. So I'm, I'm really excited about what they'll do. And as far as education, I don't know, man, as the parent of a fourth grader and a first grader, it's so often, at least in my mind, education policy seems to be more about the parents than the kids. And 
I don't know. I, we could go on about that, but I'm not much of an expert. It's just a sense that I have, you know, I, I think so much of it is about helping people learn better, not what they learn, but learn how to learn. I think that you, you hit it in the nail, uh, nail on the head for me, because I think, you know, we talk about in our work, the concept of anti-fragile, which is from Nassim Nicholas Taleb around, you know, the, the ability, you can't predict the future from the past. So, but get ready for the, the future and build to thrive in chaos. And we've just added the words in, in a deeply human way to that. So we've got to find a way to educate ourselves. And even myself now, I'm finding that it's really useful for me to do some deep work around the, some of the stuff I'm doing and thinking uh, to help me. But I think we've got to at some point start to go back to the, some education of how you become a leader at school, university, everything else to start to think about it. A fascinating conversation just before around the ability of, of people to solve problems through complexity, but they've got to do the hard work first and they've got to learn how to fail first. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. If every, if every time that you might be wrong, you freak out and want to either attack someone or duck out of a conversation or prove yourself right after all, that's not in the interest of learning. That's not in the interest of, of the group actually figuring things out. And so much of that happens because, because the structures in which we tend to discuss things publicly uh, make everything feel really personal. And they actually, it actually is really personal. In a lot of these platforms, you say the wrong thing or what have you, the social consequences could be severe for you, or you'll at least you'll at least imagine that people have suddenly judged you very harshly and that, you know, things will never be the same again. You don't know. The one thing on social media that we cannot witness is listening. There's no way to witness somebody listening to what you have posted. So you don't get any of that feedback. Mm -hmm. And it's very scary. It's very scary to just put yourself out there like that and not know what all your friends think and, you know, what they think secretly in their own minds. So yeah, Mm -hmm. we have to find spaces where these consequences are not, so severe so we can find our courage again to just engage each other and not be so afraid yeah and, and i think we're we're coming to this point now and what we're talking about here because this fearlessly curious fearlessly going into a conversation and and our natural reaction i've said this a couple of times recently you know i had a friend who was racist in front of me and i made the choice to say right i'm, I'm leaving that friendship i can't be friends with and it was it was a man, uh, a friend who just said to me, he was a black man. He said, you know, Colin, I would stay in there because the only way you're going to change it is from that position of friendship and ability to go in there. And that's scary, but he's right. Yeah. And so did you, what did you do? I'm still in that friendship and I'm still, and I'm, I'm fighting that conversation. Yeah. And it's a, a bit of a fight because there's not never the right time to, to raise it. Yeah with everybody else around, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm raising it. I'm living it and I'm having the conversation and actually I'm, I'm slightly cheating, but I'm distracting by having conversations around the work I'm doing around equity, inclusion, diversity, and, and challenging the conversations around those and seeing the reaction. And actually I think we're moving. So I haven't tackled the, the incident but we're tackling the different conversation from a different angle. Now, whether that's some people will say, well, you're not really having the conversation. Well, if I, if I can persuade him, yeah. Yeah, no, you are. In a different route, still having the conversation. I talk, I'm so inspired by hearing that. There's not a lot of examples of that. And it, it does take courage, but I think that it's, it's sort of the long game. I think a lot of us are playing too short of a game and we're not thinking long-term about the effects of burning a bridge. 
Yeah. If you burn a bridge, you eliminate the opportunity mm. of any understanding happening across that bridge ever. Mm. Are you sure you want to do that? And if you have a connection across a severe disagreement, and, and you're not the first person who's told me, you know, I've, saw, I've seen someone be racist in front of me and struggle with that relationship. Mm. But if you break that relationship, play that out. You know, your friend is right. Mm. Play that out. If, if that person has fewer and fewer people who mm. believe that what they believe is, you know, gosh, like, I just don't see it that way. And, and I think that you'll, you know, you see the world more clearly if you don't have these severe judgments of whole groups of people. And if there's no one in their lives left uh, who do that mm -hmm. and who could present that at the right moment, you're right that it's never the right moment. It's, no. it's very, 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 very hard. But even if the chance is very small, it's still better than zero. Yeah. And, it, you know, to value the friendship, value the friendship and then, then move it mm -hmm. into here. But, it, you know, I, I want to just end on a, a note that you mentioned before. It's the storytelling. It is the storytelling. By telling the stories and getting people to hear stories. And you hear the stories of, you know, the, the leader of the Ku Klux Klan who was – who changed to being, you know, against it because of conversations that he was the heir yeah. apparent to Stormfront, but it's another white supremacist yes. conversion story. There's yeah. a bunch of those out there and they're really moving. And they are moving. And, and again, even then, once you start to hear the reasons why and behind it, then there's truth. There's truth in those stories that we need to tackle as a society. Exactly. And exactly. So. We, we think that because yeah. somebody's conclusions are beyond the pale, there can be no value in engaging. There's nothing to learn, mm -hmm. but there's always truth in someone's story. That's, that's, that's where wisdom comes from. Even if, even if they believe lies, sure. Or something horrible and evil and hateful, sure. Mm -hmm. But that hate in someone's heart can be undone. It really can. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, we could go on and this is another episode. No, no, no. It's a, <laughs> but I, you know, I'd love to go on and maybe there's a, another version of this that we get into to, to, to tackle, but uh, Thank you. I mean, I, I love the concept of the book. I love the uh, almost the fearless way that you're you're tackling a subject that's very close to my heart, and I, I love that. Thank you, Monica, for coming on. If people want to hear um, more about you or get in contact, how would they do that? Yeah, uh, they can go to my my website, moniguzman.com, and that'll have links to uh, the book. I never thought of it that way, uh, but also, uh, yeah, plenty of other places and talks and things like that that I'm doing because to me this is just so important oh it is and best of luck with the book because it's it's a book that needs to be read and need to be heard and the conversations that we need to be had so uh, brilliant thank you for sharing it with us today thank you Monica thank you so much Colin wow amazing lady energy passion for the subject and again a, a bravery in terms of taking on a book on this topic uh, and we live in dangerously divided times and it's as a leader uh, or as an individual we're going to get into conversations we never thought we would have uh, before and this is a chance for us to start to share some of the um, the ways we can do that and, and touching on how we can start to learn from the younger uh, generation that are coming through after us, um, but also how to, to even just structure those conversations, some useful research and work that she's done in there. And I, I love the conversation. So thank you to Monica. And I look forward to welcoming you back on a, another uh, episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Thank you. Mm -hmm.